Thank you for joining us for the Restoration Church Podcast. This week is the first in our series about James, and it comes from James chapter 1. We hope you enjoy. Good morning, church. Welcome to your Restoration Church. I'm glad you guys are here. Thank you for joining us. Um, we are in a cool part of life. We just finished Matthew. We're going to start James for the summer. So if you're going to stick with us, we're going to go through the entire book of James, ending close to our launch, our public launch, and uh, reminding ourselves about James 5 and about the importance of death groups. So there's a lot going on in our lives. Today, we're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. So either turn to that on your phone, on your tablet, or in those leather-bound beautiful editions that you carry with you, whichever one. So James chapter 1, 1 through 18. While you're looking for it, I'm going to give you a little background on James. Uh, it's an interesting book. It's after Hebrews and before 1 Peter, so if you're looking for it in the paperback, there you go. Um, yeah, I know, for real, it's always harder to find it there than just pushing buttons, isn't it? It's crazy. Uh, after, after Hebrews, first, before 1 Peter, and actually 1 Peter and James have a lot of similar themes. It's interesting. Like some scholars believe that 1 Peter was, used James as a source for teaching, right? That James was around. It was already circulating among the churches. And it's also pre-Gospels. It's before the Gospel of Matthew, but it references a lot of things that Matthew talks about. So the cool thing is that we're going to be studying a book that really gives us a picture of the first century church. What the doctrine they believed, what the teachings of Jesus was being circulated among the church. And it's going to help us to see how to practically live out in wisdom our faith. That's what it's all about. There's a lot of exciting things happening here at Restoration. We are in the process of revamping depth groups. Um, you will be getting an email, if you have not already, about your involvement in depth groups. Do you want to get in one? Are you in one? When do you meet? When do you want to meet? Um, and we're also working on some basic curriculums to move through as a depth group. So instead of going in and thinking, what are we going to do, we want to provide you kind of from framework. Now, if your depth group wants to get together and do the five things that James 5 talks about and you want to study your own book, it's totally, you're totally free to do it. We just want to give you some structure as we're moving on. So look for that in the future. Uh, might have some pamphlets to kind of lead through eight to ten week series on different books that we can study as a group. Um, if you get that email or when you get that email, please reply. Even if it's I'm not in a depth group and I'm not interested. Send me a reply. Let me know where you're at so that we can know how we need to move forward. Depth groups are essential to the mission of this church, which is to pursue intimacy with God and intimacy with one another. Right? Another exciting thing that's happened is our missional communities are in the process of multiplying. We had one missional community for the longest time, and we were meeting and eating and hanging out and trying to figure out what does it mean to live on mission together. And over the last four or five weeks, we've been putting a lot of meat on those bones, and now we're in a healthy place to, to multiply our community into two groups, one with a focus on international students from Taiwan at UNC, adopting them, bringing them into our family, helping them get settled in the country, and sharing the gospel with them. And then the second one is going to be focused on poverty and those who are interested in climbing out of poverty. Us building relationships with them, bringing them into our family, loving people. So those are our two options to be on mission together. That's pretty exciting. But if we're going to live on mission, we're going to have to live by faith, right? Mission is going to lead to us living by faith. And also mission means, and if we're going to pursue intimacy with God, we're going to pursue intimacy with one another. We're going into battle. We're going, we're going to do spiritual warfare. And where there's war, there is what? There's suffering. Where there's war, there's suffering. Um, living missional lives, pursuing intimacy with God makes our enemy a little upset with us. right? He would much rather us just be complacent and come and plop and listen to a sermon and go about our lives in a worldly way. But when we take seriously the gospel command to make disciples, 
we become, we get on his hit list. And so we're going to go through trials and suffering. If you are a Christian, you're going to go through trials and suffering. And the way to get through it is inevitably by faith. Uh, faith and, and, and trials are two of the major themes of the gospel, of, uh, sorry, not the gospel, the epistle of James, the letter to the church. And especially in chapter one, faith and trials. So since we live in a world where one is necessary and one is inevitable, it's important for us to equip ourselves and get ready for the coming battles. James chapter 1 is all about this. So find it in your, in your books. We're going to get started. The catchphrase for you to leave with today is really, it's, it's, it's funny, okay? You've heard the phrase, fake it till you make it, right? We're going to switch it up. Today what we want to leave with is faith it until you make it. Everybody say it with me. Faith it till you make it. A little more energy, a little more, right? Faith it till you make it. I like it. There you go. Awesome. All right. We're going to start in chapter 2. I'm sorry, in verse 2. Consider it joy, right? Consider it joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials. So if we're going to study what trials and faith and how they go together, we've got to understand what James means by trials. Okay? This word trials is linked closely to, in the Gospels, the same word that is used for cross-bearing. Meaning, when Jesus called us to follow him, he literally called us to pick up our cross. There was going to be suffering we were going to endure for our faith. It's inevitable. If you think you can avoid all the suffering of being a Christian, you're probably not being a Christian. Right? There's something missing. To, pick up, to follow Christ means to pick up the cross. So this trial that James is talking about first, when you, when you encounter various trials, the first one he's talking about is persecution for your faith. Whatever that might be, however that might look. But by adding the word various to the introduction here, he's opened up the idea of what other trials can be. So the consistent point throughout James is that the authenticity of your faith is discovered in the midst of a trial. The authenticity of your faith is discovered in the midst of a trial. So there are trials of persecution. There are trials associated with the consequences of your personal sin. There, um, there are trials associated with the sin of others against us. And then there are trials uh, where our, our faith is being evaluated, right? Do we really believe that God is who God is and that he does what he does and he says what he says? Think, think Job, right? In the book of Job, Job was put under a lot of persecution by who? Satan, not God, right? Satan persecuted Job, but God permitted it in the time so that he could receive glory from it and that Job could see where his faith was strong and where it was lacking, right? It was an opportunity for him there. So we're going to get a little deeper into that idea of why does God permit suffering later on. So regardless of the nature of the trial, uh, there are three things we can learn today. So if you're taking notes, these are the three things you need to write, okay? In every trial, there is a purpose. In every trial, there is a purpose. Second, in every trial, there is a temptation. And third, in every trial, there is a promise you can cling to. There is a purpose, there is a temptation, and there is a promise. Consider it joy, my brothers, verse 2 and 3. Consider it joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So there's a purpose. There's a purpose to suffering. There's a purpose to trials in this world. Regardless of what the nature of it is, whether it's a sin trial or it's a testing of your faith trial or whatever, there's a purpose. The first one is to evaluate your faith. James, James really in chapter 1 and throughout his book is not playing around. Right? There's not a gray area for James. He's a black and white kind of guy. He's like, hey, listen, you either believe God or you don't. You either have faith with works or you don't have faith. You can't, you can't have, you know, like he is a, a very clear-cut guy. And so he's trying to teach us the practical fact that in a suffering, that ultimately 
the source of confidence that you believe in determines what your faith is. So what on, on the truths that you believe, you act, right? If you believe something to be true, you act on it. If you don't believe something to be true, you what? Enter one ear and out the other, right? You're like, all right, whatever. Acting on truth, applying what you know to be true is called what? Wisdom. It's called wisdom, right? Applying knowledge is wisdom. So check it out. Verse 5. There's, so there's this purpose, right, that you're going to produce endurance. And in the process, you're going to learn something about yourself. Your faith is going to be tested. But if you find that you lack something, which is wisdom, let him ask God uh, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But it, he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That's 5 through 8. When we're in the midst of trials, James teaches us that God desires for us to act on his truths, right? If you find that you don't know what to do, you don't know what truths to apply to your life, ask God and he gives wisdom generously, right? If you're lacking wisdom, ask God and he gives generously. Uh, the guiding principle here for the entire first chapter is this. Right understanding means that we put faith and action together. What, understanding who God is means we put faith and action together. Right understanding means putting the promises of God above the cares of this life and the assurance of the life that is to come. And then right understanding about wise action is ultimately blessedness. Blessed is the person who is wise and acts in faith. So when we ask God, we can't doubt. Right? It says, if you realize you lack wisdom, ask God, but you can't ask in any doubt. What does that mean? Anybody doubt? When you ask it, when you're praying, do you have a little bit of doubt? You're like, I'm not sure my prayer got past the ceiling. I'm not sure you heard me. Well, this is what James is talking about. He's not asking, he's not saying you can't doubt. It's not about the existence of God. It's about the assurance of do you believe that what God teaches is true? Do you believe that he has the answer for you? Or are you just praying because you think it's just something you have to do because you're a Christian? Right? Doubt uh, is linked with a lacking of faith that God says what he means that he's trustworthy, and he's reliable in the moments of our suffering. To doubt is to disbelieve that God has the answer in the first place. So why would someone with doubt uh, in their prayer expect that God would give them anything? Right? They're saying, I don't believe what you're going to give me is true anyway. I'm going to pursue my own way in the first place. So what he's saying, James is saying, if you pray with doubt, then it's like having faith without works. They don't go together. To doubt is... To prayer with doubt is like having one foot on a helicopter wanting to go somewhere but not taking the other foot off the ground and expecting that you can get where you're going just like that. Eventually, it's, something's got to give. You either get on board with Jesus or you got to go with the world. But you can't have both, right? Doubting puts us at odds not, with, not only with the ultimate resolution of our suffering, but it puts us at odds with the very character of God because you're ultimately saying to him, I don't believe you are who you say you are. That is what doubting is. So to ask for wisdom with doubt is to say, God, I need your help, but I don't think you're going to help me, so I'm going to do it my way, but can you make it work out somewhere in the middle? It just doesn't make sense. For James, it doesn't work. To James, prayer with doubt is like faith without works. Because if God can't lead us in the answers, why would we ask him in the first place? Praying for wisdom with doubt is like, uh, sorry, so to doubt God's ability to teach, instruct, or lead you in the right knowledge and the appropriate action means that you don't have an authentic faith in him to begin with. Did you hear that? To say, God, 
I disbelieve what you're going to teach me is to say I don't trust you in the first place. That's a pretty strong thing. It's a pretty strong statement. James, in his, first, in his whole argument in chapter 1, this is what he's trying to teach the church. You either have an authentic faith in God and his ability to save you and instruct you and lead you and act in his wisdom, or you don't. And where you find that out is in trial, is in suffering. So seeking the world's answer over God's result means you're double-minded. That's what it means to be double-minded, to try to have your foundation in two different things, in a sovereign God of all, of all things and then also in the ways of the world. You're double-minded. And James says, if you're going to be like that, you're going to be tossed like the waves of the sea. You've got no foundation to stand on. It means that there's no footing or solid foundation for which you to face your suffering. Trials test our choice to follow God's direction and his wisdom or to choose the wisdom of the world and reveal our lack of faith. So that's the first purpose of a trial, of suffering. Secondly, there's another purpose, and that's to strengthen and encourage believers. Go back to verse 4. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This word perfect is a big important word for James 2, right? Remember, God's command that Jesus taught us is, your father says, be perfect as I am perfect. Like, there's a, there's a, a natural desire for holiness that we should be pursuing. Trials are the fires that purify our faith, right? Think about when you purify gold. You put it in a big cauldron, and you heat it to the superheated, superheated like, uh, temperature where everything glows big pink and red, and then you pour gold into it and it melts, right? And then what happens when it, the gold melts? All the impurities rise, right? They come to the surface. And then you skim off the impurities. So one of the purposes of trials and suffering in, for James is that it would encourage us to become perfect. Our impurities of our faith, the places where we find that we're lacking in discipline, the places where we find we're lacking in trust in God, would come to the surface and we can deal with them so that we can be strengthened and encouraged. So our trials reveal our weaknesses, areas of discipline we're missing or need attention. Trials stretch us. The command of God to be perfect is a real command to James, and he's trying to encourage believers to do that, to be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Another purpose of the trials is to remind us of our true home. Look at verse 9. James jumps all around here, but there, there's purpose in, in suffering. Verse 9. The brother of humble circumstances is the glory in his high position. What does that mean? Right? It's just kind of random here. It's put in here. If you, act, if you, you need wisdom, ask for wisdom, but don't be double-minded. You'll be tossed by ways. By the way, if you're in humble circumstances, you should glory in your high position. What he's teaching us here is that our trials reveal where our home really is. Economic poverty was a big thing in the early church, right? There were people who had nothing. That's why when the first church got together, they collected all their possessions and they gave so that no one had need. Poverty was a reality. And, but the encouragement was when you're suffering and you don't have the means to overcome the suffering yourself, remember, this is not your home. Your home is in heaven. Ultimately, you are adopted sons and daughters of a king. You are in a kingdom, and that place is being prepared for you. That's your true home. So don't let your lack of resources on this earth discourage you in your suffering. Remember where your home is. Remember who you belong to. The second thing is for those in high positions, right? For those in high positions, the rich, you should glory in your humil humiliation. So the temptation when we have a lot of resources is to not depend on God, right? We can solve our own problems. I can buy my way out of it. I can pay that bill. I can just save a little bit. I can go work a little extra. Like, if you have resources, if you're rich in the world standards, 
It's, it's less likely that you'd be on your knees in times of good things, right? But then when the carpet gets pulled out from underneath you, you're going to wish it was there to cushion your knees, right? Because when you don't have resources, you, you've got to remember where your home is. When you have resources, you've got to remember that ultimately your dependency is not in you, but on the resource and the provision of God. So James says trials help the rich remember that they need to depend on God. Trials help the poor remember that their home is in heaven. Right? Same for both, but that's one of them. So, the three purposes of a trial. To test the authenticity of your faith, to encourage you to remember where your home is, and to exhort you to depend on God. Right? Those are the purposes of suffering. But there's also a temptation. There's a huge temptation whenever we're in trials. Verse 13. Let no one say that he is tempted. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. There is a temptation with suffering, and we've all faced it, right? And it is to blame God, right? That's the temptation. When you're in the midst, when you... When your whole life feels like it's in shambles, when you've got a situation that's overwhelming, you're, you're losing sleep about, has it ever crossed your mind to say, God, why are you doing this to me? To blame God. Yet, James argues that to blame God is to be deceived. So why do, the way that we commonly question or blame God is to ask him these two essential questions. God, why do you let this happen to me? Or if you are so good... If you are so powerful, why don't you stop this? Anybody ask that question? No, just me. I'm the only faithless person in here. Okay, cool. Well, glad I'm your pastor. All right. Um, James teaches us here that God uh, is not the cause of our suffering, but that sin is the root cause. Sin is the root cause. Right? That's why he says when lust leads to sin, sin brings death, brings suffering and trials. So sin is the problem. Not God. God does not tempt us. God is not tempted by evil. God allows certain things to happen to us. There are three forms of trials because of sin. There's our personal sin. We bring suffering on ourselves because of our own decisions to reject God's way. Right? So if, um, if I go and steal a computer from Apple, and for some, yeah, and, and, and I, I get arrested, and I go to jail, and then they say, well, your bail is $10,000. I just stole the computer from Apple. I don't have $10,000, right? So my suffering in jail, and trust me, it'd be suffering. I'm cute. So I would not last long in jail. But my suffering in jail would be because of my own sin. I mean, I, look at this face, right? I mean, like, anyway, I'm cute and I'm meek. Uh, but I mean, like, I would not last long in jail, but my suffering would be because of my sin. Right? Nobody else did this to me. I chose to go steal. God plain told me not to do that. I'm reaping the rewards of my, of my sin. The other way is we suffer not because of what you've done, but because of what somebody does to you in their sin. So let's say we're going to get real nitpicky. Right here we go. We're driving down the road and someone is texting and driving. Well, we know that that's just as bad as being drunk, right? So you're texting and you're driving, and yes, I'm guilty of it, and I'm sorry. And if the police come and arrest me because I just recorded this and put it on the internet like an idiot, but whatever, I've done it. You got to catch me though. You got to catch me. Anyway, um, you're texting and driving, and someone hits you. Right? They ruin your car, and you have back problems. Right? Now you're going through chronic pain in your back because someone decided they would break the law and disregard you, devalue you, 
and hit you. Like, it was an accident, but they, they sinned against you, and now you suffer. It happens, right? That's part of suffering. The other one is simply this. We live in a broken world because of, of original sin, right? I mean, when, when Adam sinned, all of creation got corrupted. So if you're at home and a tornado hits your house and ruins everything, it's not God did that to you. That's just the fallenness of this world, right? I mean, a tornado hit your house. That stinks. But, you know, earthquakes, floods, disease, cancer, death, all of these things are products of the original sin, the, the destruction of God's original creation because of our desire to be God, our desire to reject his ways and go our way. And then we suffer that, right? So there's our sin, other sin, original sin. Okay, so sin might be the answer. It might be the cause of su- the suffering. But the question still remains. If God is so good, if God is so loving, if God, this God you believe in, Will, is so powerful, why don't you just stop it? Anybody ever asked that question? You ever been asked that question? Yes. You share the gospel with somebody, and their biggest objection is, well, if God is good, there would never be any evil in the world. Right? Okay. So I'm going to give you a logical argument why I think, or how you can, you can address this. Right? It's not fair to bring up a big question and not address it and move on. Right? Well, actually, we'll just move on. All right. Um, I'm just kidding. So if you go to our Facebook page, the Restoration Church Facebook page, um, there's a, a video posted. And there's a guy named uh, Dr. Robbie Zachariah. He's a great apologist. Okay. And I put it up so you can, this is where the inspiration for this came. But I'm going to try to explain it to you in, you know, southern bald-headed language. All right, so here we go. God, in all of his sovereignty, and all of his goodness, has revealed himself to us. He showed us who he is, right? He's done it in three major ways. He's done it through his son in the flesh. He showed himself to us that way. He gave us his word, his revelation, to tell us all about his character. And he put his spirit in the hearts of believers. So we know who God is. We know that he is good. We know that he loves us. We know that he's for us. But yet evil still exists. And this God who revealed himself to us revealed to us that there is one thing above all other ethics, above all other things that we should pursue. And what is that? Love. Right? The greatest commandment. Jesus was asked. God himself in the flesh was asked, what is your greatest commandment? He didn't ask it that way, but, you know. What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. All other law, all the rest of the prophets, everything in the Old Testament that I've revealed about me hangs on these two, is to love. And if we are commanded to love, then there has to be interwoven into it a reality of freedom of will. We have to be able to choose to love. Right? If you don't choose to love, then what you're doing is complying. And that's not love. So if God makes us love someone, he gets compliance, but we don't love. So in order to love, there has to be choice. And if there's choice to love, there's choice to sin. There's choice to commit evil against other people. To love someone is to value them, to place a value on someone or something, to be treasured and protected, right? To, to say I love means to treasure something. And then you don't want to sin against it. You don't want to hurt it. You don't want to destroy it. You want to protect it. But we sin against each other all the time. And sin is a reality in this world. And we attack one another and we kill one another and we're, we have malice towards one another and hatred and bitterness and it destroys relationships and it, and it ends lives and it causes wars. And so there's this, this opportunity to love, but an, on the same time there's an opportunity to commit evil. Now, if we ask God to intervene 
and that freedom of will to stop all evil, then we've asked him to produce an entity that's not humanity. We've asked him to make us into machines. To really eliminate all evil in the world, he has to take away the freedom of our will. He has to make us compliant robots. We can never love. And so if he commanded us to love above all things, and then he takes away our freedom to love, then he deconstructs and he's illogical. He makes no sense. He falls apart. He can't command us to do something and then take away our ability to do it. So there's the freedom to hurt people. Right? So, why does God let all things, all this bad stuff happen? Why does he let us go through suffering? Why does he put us in situations that hurt, that stink? Because he has to give us the opportunity to love. And if he stops sin against us, he stops our ability to love other people. So, for the skeptic who says, well, if he was good, he'd figure out a way around that. I've got good news. He has figured out a way around that. If, you, if your biggest objection to God is that there's evil in the world, then your answer is not to reject him or to run from him or to blame him. You reject, your, your proper response, if you really want to deal with evil in the world, is to submit to him. Because he saves us from the power of sin and death. He takes away that natural inclination of the carnal man to sin against other people and gives us the ability to love in selfless ways that we can't do apart from his Holy Spirit. In crazy, crazy ways. So he not only has recognized that we have sin, he sent his son to conquer sin and death. And when we submit to his lordship and we start to follow his teaching, then we are less likely to desire to sin against other people. So if everybody in the world submitted themselves to God and, and obeyed and acted in wisdom, there would be less sin and suffering. Right? So the answer is not God stinks and he's not powerful enough. The answer is we continue to reject him. So you want to solve the problem, submit to him. It's a simple answer. But then you say, okay, so we submit and we stop sinning against other people. And we stop facing the, the, let's say there's this perfect utopia and we don't sin. But there's still death and there's still sickness and disease. Why didn't he stop that? Good news. He is creating a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying. There will be no more disease. There will be no more death. So if you want to see that reality come to fruition, submit yourself to him. And then you get to experience that utopia that you so longing desire. That you hold against him. He has given you a way through Christ to know all those things. It's quite interesting. Instead of rejecting love, choose to love God. That's the temptation. Blame God. The answer, submit to God. Love him. And look at the opportunity that this presents to you in your suffering. Right? So, in every, in every trial there's a purpose can be one of many. There's a temptation, and then there's a promise. In every trial, there's a promise. <coughs> In the exercise of his will, he brought forth by his word, brought us forth by the word so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The words brought us forth can also be written as he has given us new birth. He's given us life. So we reread that. In the exercise of his will, it was his desire to give us new life by the word of truth. That's pretty cool. Here's the promise. In suffering, there's opportunity for new life. In suffering, there's opportunity for new life. Because it's his will that through God's word, as we enact the wisdom of God, we become new. We are being made new. We are being perfected. We are being sanctified. 
The word of truth is the instrument by which God implants new life in the believer. The word of truth is the gospel. James' concern was not only that we knew the word of truth, but that we would live it out practically. We would do truth. Meaning it's one thing to know the gospel, it's another to live it out daily. It's the living out of the gospel that we have new life. So what does it mean to be first fruits? Well, James is uniting the original creation when he says the father of lights. Right? When you read that, the father of lights. Um, we skipped that text, so sorry, we'll go back to it. But if you read it, let me go back and read it so you can hear it. Do not be deceived, my brethren. Every good thing is given. This is verse 16 and 17. And every good and perfect gift is given, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadows. So the, the reason he adds this in here is to say, if you blame God for your suffering and you're deceived, that the good giver of the, all things is the problem. And you're deceived that you're not the problem. Right? And so it goes back to the submit yourself to God. So in this idea of bringing together... Uh, bringing together the two concepts of new life. The first fruits are the Old Testament, the father of lights refers to creating all things, and he designed it perfectly. And then the first fruits is an Old Testament reference to, um, oh man, I hate it when the, the thing messes up. The first fruits is the Old Testament reference to things that are given to God first. So you have anything that is living, any living creature, creation that you gave to God, it was considered his possession, his valued possession. So whether it be humans or animals or whatever, the first fruits of your harvest, you gave it to God as a gift of thanksgiving and for his possession. So he's bringing it together. He's saying, this father of lights who created all things originally is pleased to give you through the word of truth a new life, right? The life he intended for you in the beginning, he gives you through the gospel. Uh, it is in the gospel that we're being redeemed and restored. The gospel is implanted spiritually in us, and it begins to bear fruits of God in us, right? It begins to bear more first fruits. So we begin to be, in the gospel, God's own possession in this world that he represents and he loves one another. So in every suffering, there's opportunity to live by the gospel. And in every suffering, there's an opportunity for new life. The second promise of suffering is that there's a victory. There's a victory in suffering. Verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So when we persevere in our trials, God approves of our faith. Remember, James says, part of this, this whole first chapter is, is your faith authentic? Do you really believe that God is who he says he is? And you're finding out in your trials. And if you do believe and you persevere, your faith is approved. In approving, you get the crown of life. So, what is the, the crown of life? It's a reward. It's a victory. It's a victory over suffering, but it's also a reminder of your victory over this world. Right? That you're more than sufferers. You're conquerors over this world in Christ. The reward is a reference to um, Hebrews, where he talks about running the race and receiving the prize. Right? The prize was the, the olive branch crown. You know, that was the victor's crown. And so the crown of life, meaning that when we persevere through suffering... We get the crown of life. The victory, the prize, is this eternal life with God. It's the crown's eternal life. Remember, James is very concerned about the authenticity of one's faith. Words are not enough. Trials are the testing grounds. And after you've completed the trial, with the right faith and the right actions, you're assured of your eternal life with God. So there is a victory that we know, but in each trial, uh, each trial becomes like little trophies. There's an overall victory. We have eternal life. But every time you, you persevere through a suffering, it's like 
you see a little victory, right? You can look back at your life and it's like your little trophy room. Oh, I've been through that. That's not going to beat me again. I've been through that. It's like little victories, little crowns of life. Finally, there's a promise for opportunity. There's a promise for opportunity. So if you walk into any bookstore in America, you can go to any shelf and you're probably going to find an opportunity to avoid suffering, right? There's going to be a way to help you get out of suffering. Our country hates suffering, right? We've created thousands of pharmaceuticals to avoid suffering. We got 50,000 talk shows during the hours of, you know, 9 to 4 o'clock in the afternoon to help you avoid suffering. Like, you can, we just do not like to suffer. And it makes sense because suffering stinks, right? I mean, like, anybody want to suffer today, right? Come up and break your arm. We'll see how you like it. You know, it's, nobody wants to go through it. It hurts. It stresses us out. We lose sleep. It puts strain and tension in our relationships. It ends marriages. It causes parent, uh, kids to divorce their parents or act crazy. You know, like suffering stinks. Trials are not something we want to endure. But, so we, we, chase, we chase peace like horse flies after a jogger. You know what I'm saying? Like anybody been, you know, that's my funny illustration for the day. Come on, people. Horse flies. Anybody been chased by a horse fly? All right, everybody is coming to my house. We're all taking a loop, all right? And you will experience this illustration. It's annoying. Those things are relentless. We chase peace relentlessly. There's no way. You can't swat it off. No, I'm good with my suffering. No, you're running right into it. And as soon as somebody dangles a cure for our suffering in front of us, we jump on it like bears on a beehive. <laughs> Whatever. All right. But here... In James and throughout countless examples in the scriptures, we learn that trials and suffering, especially those associated with our faith, are immersed with opportunities. The opportunities. There's an opportunity for joy. There's an opportunity to separate our happiness with our circumstances and to know that no matter what the scenario, we are secure in the love of God. That God is for us. He is with us. He's got our back. And yes, this stinks. But I'm not going to lose. Because even if I die, I still get life. There's opportunity for joy. Opportunity for deeper intimacy with God and, and with the body of Christ. When we, when we come to one another and suffer well together. When we bear one another's burdens. When we go through trials together, walking beside our brothers and sisters. There's opportunity for intimacy. And there's opportunity to be affirmed in faith and encouraged by the one who purchased you. So here's the conclusion. Here's the truth. If you're sick, go to the doctor. You got cancer, take medicine. If you're, if you're broke, develop a budget. Act wisely. I'm not saying don't act in your trials and sit back and just wait for the opportunity for joy. Obviously, execute wisdom. That's, what, that's one of, the, of James' biggest things. Look at God's word, see what he tells you to do, and then execute wisdom. If you lose your job, file for unemployment. You're struggling with a decision that can change your life, seek wise counsel. Do something. But James has taught us that since trials are inevitable and we live in this fallen world, we've got to realize that there's purpose in them. So don't miss them. Don't miss the purpose. Don't get so hung up trying to stop your suffering that you miss the purpose. You've got to realize that there's a temptation to blame God and to, and to lose faith, to, to separate yourself from God, to miss out on his blessings. Avoid that. And you've got to see that in the midst of your suffering, there's an opportunity. There's opportunity for victory. There's an opportunity for newness of life to be perfected, there's an opportunity for joy. So 
if you're suffering through something right now and it just stinks, I affirm you. It stinks. Nobody wants to go through it. But take 10 minutes each day and just ask God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? And I don't mean 10 seconds. I mean 10 minutes. Sit quietly and just ask God, what's the opportunity here? Am I falling into the temptation? And do I realize your purpose? Because in that, your faith is strengthened. You are encouraged and you endure. And ultimately, you become complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. That's the goal. So we ultimately have to faith it until we make it. Say it with me. Faith it until we make it. There we go. I love the whoever got me there with a real strong faith it. You know, it's like, oh, nobody else is talking until you make it. It's like, I like that. Faith it until you make it. All right? Let's pray.